Hello, my name is Jack Elliot Hobbs, and welcome to Unlived Lives, a philosophical YouTube series and podcast in which we explore the lives my guests are not living and why. If you hear any unmotivated sound, it's likely to be my two dogs enjoying life entirely in the present, unaware of any disruption they may be causing. I hope you enjoy listening. My guest in this episode is a self-proclaimed middle-class Surrey boy who went to grammar school, where he was defined by his ability to swim. He attended university in Manchester before dabbling in recruitment and accounting and has since built a career in running recruitment teams. Out of work, he spends his time mountain biking, playing board games and pontificating over his next car or bike purchase whilst enjoying his first and only love, whiskey. Simon Jobson, welcome to Unlived Lives. Thank you so much. So good to have you. Absolutely brilliant. Teach me about whiskey. Oh, whiskey's about trying lots of whiskeys. It's, um, I tell you what, the, the way that I found more and more than recently, so one of the key things I actually ended up doing over the lockdown period um, was that you can actually get these whiskey sets that set from, you can get them from a few different websites where you get sent basically a kit of so like five little, right. what they call drams of whiskeys okay. and things like that. And you get to then taste them and try them but not have too much because obviously if you buy a bottle of whiskey which can be quite quite (laughs) expensive and you don't like it then you have an expensive thing on your shelf that you have to begrudge drinking and there's nothing worse than that so i i got into whiskey years ago when i was at university when i was at university really from the friends of mine who knew a lot more about it found the ones i'd liked and as i've got older my tastes have become more and more interesting i suppose or quite aggressive or peaty whiskey so you have like Everyone thinks of whiskey and they think of like Jack Daniels and they mix it with Coke. And yeah. hey, I used to do that. And now that makes me cry. And now I want whiskey <laughs> with like no ice, no ice, sorry, right. just sort of sitting there by itself, single malts. And uh, it can be quite an expensive uh, hobby to get into. But yeah, by doing all these different tastings, we've been doing it every week. So mm. uh, uh, some friends, friends of mine introduced it to me and then a wider group of people that I'd never met before online. It's actually quite an interesting thing to get into. Mm. And then you end up finding the ones you like, what you don't like. And it's so there's like, a bit of a community. Oh, definitely a big community yeah. of it as well, like online as well. You can get lost in doing these things and going to whiskey tasting nights, but mm. obviously it's expensive. But you then find where you like and you learn about the regions of like, especially like Scottish whiskeys, mm. Irish whiskeys, maybe not so much in terms of region and what they like and where it tastes distilleries and what you like and what you don't and yeah it's a bit of a rabbit hole and like i'm still learning so like from so, a point- <laughs> it sounds like a rabbit. <laughs> from, a point, from that point of view but it's an enjoyable thing to do and also i find it just a bit better than if i 
know want to have like one drink after a day or a day of work and have like one whiskey that's quite a lot more enjoyable than like a beer or anything as well which can be sometimes quite nondescript so it's a bit more of an interesting thing to do enjoy with friends and also then you know makes it easier i suppose for me to have gifts bought for me as well because what do you want this this bottle it's easy (laughs) just 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 buy me a whiskey from this kind of region and everything's fine so simple simple taste that's that's great um what are you most afraid of oh that's very interesting changed changed gear there very quickly um exactly how's your whiskey and your fears fears you know like i suppose like everybody i have a fear of failure in certain ways i want to do the best things that i can you know and i sort of strive my life around making sure that i don't i suppose so you know fear of failure of myself not other people's perceived failure i probably learned about probably 10 12 years ago not to worry about what other people see as like failures and you know, and, and wins from that point of view. Mm. So my own failure is probably the thing that I have that sort of fear of or being stagnant, you know, from that thing. I like to always be learning, moving forwards, because if I'm not doing that or being challenged, I found myself to get very bored, you know, or then feel kind of, kind of unsettled. Mm. So in like my career or my life, when things almost get sort of like too settled or too normalised or I'm not moving forwards or I feel like that kind of frustration, that's what I'm supposed most afraid of really as well, that I won't, move forward or i'll just do exactly the same thing for like the next two or three years mm. those are the kind of things that if i like lie awake at night and worry about that's what it would be mm. i i suppose but it's mainly the so lack of progression yeah essentially as well and yeah rather than i suppose actually failure to me like sort of failure would be sort of being stagnant and not moving forward so not having a plan mm. anyone will tell you that when it comes to organizing or planning things quite like doing that right. as well tend to be quite good tend to be quite good at it from I suppose part of my job or if someone's like hey Simon like my friendship group will be like we need to go away somewhere right Simon would you like to find us like a big <laughs> place where we can go and organize it in the time scales mm. yes I'm quite good at doing mm. that and I like and you enjoy that. that yeah I do because then I'm you know part of my career my job is like being in control really as well so therefore when i'm in control of that it feels good i'm happy to let other people take the reins if i trust them Mm. that's always a good thing i don't always doubt that but also like planning my own things or knowing what i'm going to be going to be doing so you know my girlfriend at the moment is like i was like well what are we going to do it's like well i've already booked us this we're going to do this this and this and then the rest of it will work out Mm. uh, as well but i like at least a core plan i don't like if someone's like hey we're just going to go up to this place and see what happens i'm like yeah, I can't do that. Your defense against your lack of progression, so your biggest fear being your lack of progression, being stagnant yeah. and and failure, is making a plan or yeah. how do you defend against yeah, it? Yeah, so, yeah, so making a plan or asking questions as well or finding out what I can do to influence it as well. Um, I see a lot of people these days that will you know, moan, they're like, oh, this is rubbish or this isn't very good or mm. this isn't going the way that I want. And a lot of times, you know, I'll ask, well, what have you done about it? Oh, nothing. Mm. And that, that frustrates me really as well. So I will be like, have a plan or ask a question. I'll be like, right, well, okay, well, I need to go and do this, whether it's been in the past, get a new job or make a decision, make a decision on something as well or go and buy something stupid as, as well. Like, this will work out fine. No, it's broken. Um, Various therapies. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the thing I... My personal opinion has always been if you're not like slightly uncomfortable in like what you're doing and what you're and putting yourself in those positions, then you're probably not growing as well. And I like that feeling mm. of sort of like, right, this is uncomfortable, I'm learning, or this is I'm uncomfortable, I'm 
buying a car that I shouldn't be or something like that, this feel, these things. But 99% of the time, these things work out when you put yourselves in those positions of being uncomfortable rather than, like, if you just sort of accept the status quo, then you end up just being sort of unhappy. Mm. We're just like, oh, nothing's changing. Where might you have learned that? It's definitely come through age and making mistakes, completely making mistakes and owning those mistakes and everything as well. Like, I... When I first came out of university, I thought I wanted to be an accountant because my dad was an accountant. So mm, this seems like a good, stable, steady job to go and do. Mm. So do the graduate scheme, go out and do it. Didn't get the grades coming out of university because I got 2-2 two, two, and they all want you to have a 2-1. So I went and did recruitment consultancy. Enjoyed it, but I thought then the recession was coming, sort of showing my age there. Um, so therefore went back into accountancy and was just doing it and didn't like it. Mm. You know, I... You know, I think of myself as being someone that when they apply themselves to doing something, everything's doable. Mm. But I wasn't passing the exams, you know, and everything as well. I wasn't doing that well. I wasn't enjoying myself doing it. And eventually I lost that job, you know, partly because I didn't want to do it, and partly because I just wasn't passing enough of the exams that this company was paying for mm. as well. And when I lost that job, I felt awful. And then two weeks later, I was like, oh, thank goodness. Mm. I don't have to do that anymore. And everything as well. And then I ended up going back to being a recruitment consultant as well. Mm. And that was uneasy because it felt like I had taken a step back, but then I built my career out of it as well. And again, then I had that job. The first job in recruitment didn't really work that well. And then, you know, essentially then got another job in it and then started to find my feet. But because I was always pushing, but when I wasn't happy, I quit it. But I was an accountant for far too long. I was an accountant for like 15, 16 months. Mm. I should have quit after three. Why didn't you? Because, you know, it was one of those things where I'd made a change and I was I thought it was something I had to stick to. You know, it was one of those things I was like, I have to give this a go. I can't just give up straight mm. straight away. Like this should be easy. Other people are doing this. This seems a safe bet when it's a recession. So it was the obvious choice in theory, the safe choice of what to do, but I just didn't enjoy it. Right. And then when I found out, you know, that like leaving that job and losing that job, which at the time felt awful, because mm. it's like, you're not very good at this, you can't do that. Mm talk about fear of failure, that felt awful. Someone telling me that you weren't good enough to do it. And I hadn't really failed up until then. You know, had an okay time at school, done other things in terms of like sports and things like that, and always being able to put in effort and do quite well and be in the upper echelons. Then suddenly I was doing this that a lot of other people were doing and I was failing at. And I suddenly realized like, ah, okay, this isn't for me. Mm. I shouldn't like keep pushing it. And I think, you know, a lot of people like, get people jobs all the time they sort of sit there and they begrudgingly do things all the time mm. and that was the first time it wasn't really my decision but I tried to then own it as my decision be like well let's say that you weren't happy doing it move on go and do the thing that you were enjoying before mm. which was the recruitment consultancy that was good fun you were enjoying you were good at it and then did that pursued it carried on doing it and then built something from it and then also I learned a lot more that when things weren't working to leave Mm. As, as well or like make changes and everything as well and that's where you learn that lesson that and relationships as well i had probably had a relationship around that same sort of time as well um where it was obvious that the relationship wasn't working right and you kept pushing it and forcing it, it was like well we'll move in together or we'll do this and mm. everything about it was wrong there was you know arguments there was unhappiness everything about it was wrong people from the outside were being like this relationship doesn't work you're not happy in this relationship. You are not the person that you were before. And we don't get to see you as well. And then taking ownership and making a decision on that, again, gave me much more ownership. Like, oh, ending something 
just because you should do it and because it will actually make you happier. Mm. It wasn't anything like actually it's like fundamentally wrong in terms of like this is an awful relationship or abusiveness or anything like sure. bad like that. It was just an unhappiness of mm. two people that shouldn't be together. And then by taking ownership of that, it's probably around 24, 25 at the time, so we're going back 10 years, I suddenly realised in the space of like two, three years, taking ownership, ending things, and then going and searching for things that were better will make you a lot happier mm. and everything as well because then you had ownership of the decisions sure. rather than having the decisions made for you where therefore you don't know if they're right or not. Mm. So where did that, where did your sort of confidence and awareness of that, how did that happen? Over time and making, just making mistakes, like mm. making the mistakes of doing that too long or doing that job, doing that job too long. I didn't, you know, I watched other people as well be sort of very confident in decisions that they made. And I'd be like, well, how did you do that? How did you have the balls to do that mm. and everything as well? This seems crazy. And then you see them six months later and they'd be doing really well because they were taking a slight risk or they were making conscious changes like, well, I don't like this, so I'm going to change it rather than wait for something or someone else to change it for me, mm. which is quite commonplace. Or how I used to feel is like, well, no one else is changing. I just sort of keep doing what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and that's where it came about from. But... It was only after you sort of like made the changes and then realized like six or 12 months later, like I'm much happier mm. now as well. And looking back on it, then you start to make more changes or you start to ask more questions and push the envelope of what's going, going on mm. and feel more confident about it. It's definitely an experience thing mm. rather than actually being like, I've read this or I've studied this or done that. It was just one of those things. I was, you know, people used to tell me about it, but I'd be like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. But then when I'd done it myself, tend to feel much more confident in you, you realize you could and yeah exactly exactly yeah. that i always yeah i think i always have a bit more faith when i've done something myself and i've mm. seen it work rather than having someone tell me uh that as well because i tend to be a little bit skeptical mm. really as well or because i suppose i've always been like from when from when i was a kid or anything like that or when you're at university you're always pretty much told to challenge everything really as well it's like well, challenge it. Why do you know it's the right thing? Shouldn't you ask questions? And you're like, and that's always been in my mind about like, well, where does that information come from? Should I challenge it? Should I not? Mm. Or should I go read more about it? Yeah. So where do you where do you learn? How do you learn? How do I learn? Um, definitely from like actual experiences happening. I like reading, you know, and everything mm. as well, or you know, listen listening to various things and trying to absorb information information. So whether that be you know, from things like you know, magazines or webinars or things like that that I've done as part of my job or, you know, I like learning about cars and bikes. So I will just go and read all the articles possible really as well to make sure that I can go and make, I don't make decisions on a whim right. really as well. Like my parents, my mum was a nurse and my dad was an accountant. Two very safe jobs, very secure people in terms of what right. they do. Didn't take any risks, all in a good way and everything as well. And that sort of put that element like, well, I'll go and do this. So, it's like buying a new car. I won't go and do it on a whim. I'll do like nine months of research, loads of reading. Mm. I'll go and read a bunch of forums about what I'm doing. And Pontificating. Then, yes, exactly. Exactly like that as well. But if I'm going to do anything that's going to be big, I'll read it out about it and, and then go and make those decisions mm. on informed. I have to have all the information before I make decisions and everything as well. And that doesn't mean kicking the can down the road. Just that means that when I do make that decision, I'm 100% sure about it, mm. really, as well. And I feel good about it and then I can have ownership and I'd rather do that and see it through. I mean, there's been other decisions that, you know, I've ended up not doing because at one point, what was it, about a few years ago, I thought about, you know, moving to America. I was like, oh, I'll move to America and do my job over there. And when I did all the research and started having the chats, I was like, 
this isn't for me. Mm. You know, it's a great idea. It's like, run away, escape, go and be in another country mm. and do this job. It'd be really cool. And then when I looked into it, I was like, no, I'm going to work even more hours. I'm not going to see that country and everything as well. And it's not guaranteed that there'll be any succession. Whereas mm. staying here and doing this will guarantee the succession if I then change and do something different here. And that was, you know, I did all the decision-making thing. It would have been very easy if I was just being like, just want to get out of this place and go do something else somewhere else because I feel like I should do before mm. I'm like 35. Mm. And then, but I didn't, and I feel really good about that. I don't feel like I missed out. I don't feel like, oh my goodness, I haven't worked abroad. I was just like, I looked at it. It wasn't for me and what I wanted to do. And now where I've gone has actually been more successful than doing that. Mm. So why do you have the ambitions you have? I've always been competitive, I think, um, you know, from from a young age, you know, I was like sports, things like that. You know, yeah, I, I talked about my different being defined by swimming. So I was always mm. a swimmer and I was a good swimmer. So therefore, when I swam as a child and then played water polo, moved to the upper echelons of what that meant and how that did. And you and I like succeeding and doing that. And you're always moving forward. And you find that as well a lot as like a child and teenager. If you're good at something, a lot of times within schools, my parents didn't push me that much. They were like, hey, if you want to do it, that's fine. But they weren't like the kind of parents that'd be like, right, you've got to go and do this and be excellent. And we want you to be like, how many times do you see, I suppose, your, you know, your football dad on the side being mm. like, go on, do that, do that. You're going to be a great footballer. And the kid's like, I like rugby. Can I not do that? No, mm. you're going to play football. And you see a lot of that. My parents weren't like that. They're like, if you like it, well, you know, do it. You can go to all the swim classes you want and do all, and, and do all of that. And that was that and went through all that. So... I think that that competitiveness meant that I always liked moving forwards. So then at university, it was the same, carried on playing water polo there. That pushed me up another level because you're playing with like ex-international players. You're like, mm. wow, I'm not as good as what I thought I was. Train harder, work harder, do that and see if you can try and keep up, keep up with them. But, you know, academia was always something that, you know, my parents liked really as well. They wanted us to do well because they were just like, it will give you a good grounding for where you want to be in the future. If you're academic and you can do this, then you'll have whatever options you want. Mm. So the only thing they ever asked for was that, be good at your classes, do all your school classes, don't do that and everything as well, because it's going to like stead you well going forwards. Both me, my brother and my sister have all been like acad academically very good. Not excellent, not like you know, the top of any school, but always good in those, again, like, sort of like top 15, 20%. And it means that you get used to that as well like mm. doing well getting the right grades and that competitiveness of being like well i want a's i want b's i want a stars and things like that then translates and then you find out that then it's quite enjoyable then when you're going to work and things like that and you find that you are better than other people that's really an enjoyable feeling as well mm. like well, I, if i work harder then i'll progress quicker and i'll be getting these rewards better or this will be recognized a bit better it's it's quite enjoyable it's quite enjoyable but then when you're standing still and you're not doing anything apart from yourself it sort of just gets a bit dull and boring do you wish your parents pushed you more as a kid no not really because then i think i think that they were pushed they would have pushed me you know to do something that i probably didn't want to do right as well like i mean i'd be perfectly honest with you, i had an excellent childhood i literally probably one of the probably the few people in the world that probably has no complaints about this or like family life and sort of like parents grow growing up they were good to me they worked hard got amazing memories we had all you know we weren't spoiled but then there wasn't that things that we couldn't couldn't have we had good education and everything as well and got to enjoy it got along with i probably got along with my parents more as i got older mm. interestingly enough as you know they found me more interesting and i found <laughs> them more interesting as well with things with things to talk about 
but yeah, it was, it's, it's always been good. Probably very close in Niles to like immediate family rather than a sort of like big, wide family. As well, but brother and sister, still in contact. So they pushed me the right amount. They just gave me support, really, as well, rather than pushing me. And that, I mean, I think leads me to sort of like probably do it more myself rather than do it for someone else. Mm. I'll let you have a drink. Mm. <laughs> I talk far too much. <laughs> oh, it's great. That's what all this is all about. <laughs> In what ways are you prone to addiction? Mm. I suppose, yeah. I, I don't know. Well, obviously, you know, I drink and I smoke, really, as well. So you could argue that, you know, those are, are addictions in, in themselves, I suppose. But I wouldn't say, you know, that I do it to a point. I've always been able to be in control of those. I'm going to stop stop at either of those and I usually do it for more enjoyment's sake mm. rather than doing that definitely addicted to achieving at work though as well that's addictive when it starts going well you know my job is obviously very much month to month you're only as good as your last month you and your team are only as good as your last month or your last quarter right and that's addictive when it starts going well you want to do better the next one so then you're like you you know we just come to the end of a quarter at work and it's like well how do we do we just had a record one how do we do better? How do we get that done? And then that sends me into sort of overdrive, I suppose, of being like, right, well, I've got to plan this. I've got to do this. Who have I got to do? What should I hire? Where can we go and get that? How can we replicate what that happened again? How can I dissect what that was? Mm. And I can go down rabbit holes very quickly of like trying to find the information to make sure it's there. Because then if we don't have as good of sort of like month or quarter, then I feel like I've feel a bit of loss and then I'll probably then end up instead of like going into it I'll be like well we just need to work harder how much harder can I work how much harder can mm. I do this what can I do there and that is addictive mm. to me the work that you know the money that we make the career path that it put, puts me on and everything as well is definitely addictive what's at the end of that road though oh who knows and that's kind of what's exciting you know it is at the end of that road me being like an owner of the business and everything as well and having mm. full ownership of what goes on there is it growing it to a more international business where i get more exposure to different regions and what we do um the career development of others that's so addictive mm. when you take someone that doesn't know what they're doing and then two three years later they're very good at it mm. and they're excelling in that way and you can be like i helped create that that's addictive and I like doing that and I've, well, I've done that for nearly 10, 11 years now mm. and it's addictive to see that. It's addictive then, you know, when you're I'm seeing a guy next week that I you know, used, used, to, used to work with and then helped build his career and he's doing really well now and it was off the back of like what we, me and him did together and mm. what we built and the ideas I took from him and the ideas that he took from me and well, he still calls me every now and again probably every sort of like three, four months and we'll be like, Hey, I'm about to do this. What should I do next? I was like, come on, mate, it's got to be your career now. Yeah. He goes, but he's just like, but yeah, but sometimes I, he goes, he calls it, he goes, I need the jobs and bluntness and everything as well. He just mm. to tell me to shut up and get on with it and go and make that decision. He said, you were always very good at helping me make that decision or pushing over the edge. I'm like, I'm good at doing that outside of it as well. I can be quite perceptive, mm. but it like, doesn't mean that I'm always good at doing it myself. It's always something I want to do, but it's not something that I can obviously force others, others to do. And that's, I see, yeah, that's probably my biggest addiction. So in what ways might you be a difficult person to work with or for? I'm a know-it-all, essentially, as well. So I like to think that because I do sort of like so much reading and work and I always want to know what's going on, I think of myself as a know-it-all. 
which can be a pain in the ass, as you can imagine, because I'd be like, no, I know better. I've done this for 11 years, or I've researched that, or this happened to me five years ago. Mm. And, you know, can be quite single-minded in those ways, because I've seen what works and do that, and can be, and be like that. People that I work with say, you can be a bit of a know-it-all arsehole, mm. which is fine, you know, but I quite like doing that, because the problem is, is that, in the same way as saying that, 80% of the time I think I'm right, especially when it comes to work and things like that. And things that I don't know about, I won't comment on really as well because you know I probably got myself into a position earlier on in life where you think oh I kind of know a bit about everything mm. and you try and blag your way through it and then get found out pretty quickly you look pretty silly so saying I don't know about that or tell me more or where have you researched it that's what I probably become better at but mm. yeah no um, being difficult to work with I can be a quite mo- well I tend to take the emotions out of work quite a lot so the work that I do and everything as well can be very emotional. There's lots of stress. There's lots of people very like like make changing jobs, and I can be quite. Well, it's just it's my job, mm. really as well. I don't tend to see the emotion in it, but you tend to take it out of it a lot more when you've done it a lot more. So people are just like, no, well, don't you care? So no, I do care, but I'm being pragmatic and logical because that's what's going to help us fix this problem. Mm. So. I can do that quite a lot where I sort of take the emotions out of when like big decisions have to be made. And then some people will be like, well, don't you care? So you get accused quite a lot of not caring. Do you think there might be anything lost because of that for you? Talking about progression. If you are if you go outwardly as a, as a know-it-all, self-proclaimed as a know-it-all, do you, what do you think you might lose in that? You probably get, well... The, if someone does that, then they, people aren't going to probably ask you for advice as much because they think you're going to sort of like force your opinion on them rather as well, which is obviously that can be seen as a bit of a frustration. So people aren't going to ask you for information or they're going to think, oh, he's just going to give me his idea rather than listen to mine, mm. where I do think I have two ears and one mouth and I do try and listen and retain what people say. But, yeah, it's that will be, you know, I don't think I've lost that. I probably lost that in progression earlier on in my career. Uh, when I wasn't listening or, you know, I just try and do it belligerently and stubbornly my own way when mm. before you realise that actually taking ideas of people around you is better and just because they don't know what they're doing, they might actually have a better way of doing it. I probably only learned that about three, four years ago. Right. Where I was just like, that person isn't very good and then watched them do their job really well and I was like, in theory, everything about what they're doing is wrong from what I've been taught and what I've thought. Mm. So why is he doing it so well? Mm. And that really, I was like, okay, well now I have to let sort of like the people be them. I, there's no point in creating a bunch of mini Simons because mm. that's boring. And, you know, no one wants no one wants that really as well. I don't need another bunch of mini me's. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the main thing that sort of like maybe sort of held me back is that sort of know it all. I've tried to change it quite a lot. I try to listen and I try to ask more questions. I suppose now being like, well, what should I do? And a lot of what I've learned probably over the last few years and when people ask me that, like whether in life or in work, is I go, well, what do you think you should do? You know, if you've got two options and you're at a crossroads, which are the two options that you're going to go down? Because it always frustrates me and goes, I don't know what to do. Have you got any ideas? No. <sighs> okay, well, that's annoying. I can't create, you know, the solution and fix the problem at the same time because mm-hmm. basically there's my, my problem and you're not doing anything. That annoys me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, come on, two options. Just pick it out of a hat, even if it's completely wrong, go for it. And, and that's become a lot better at doing because then I don't seem so much of a know-it-all mm. because obviously it's very easy if someone goes, I've got this problem, ah, what you need to do is this. Do you don't want to hear my solution? No. And that's probably helped me a bit more, but then I still end up putting probably my know-it-all spin on it as well. I'm saying, yeah, that's a good idea if we just tweak it this way. 
they still have ownership to a point, but mm. yes, try and do a bit more those ways. Mm. What do you imagine people say when they gossip about you? Oh, that's an interesting one. Again, probably the know-it-all thing, you know. Um, talks too much as well. Can't get a word in edgeways. Uh, does he have a drinking problem? No, no, it's fine. Um, I do drink a lot. I know that, but it's usually very much socially drinking um, would be what I suspect. Memories reason I know that is because that's what my family gossip about me as well. They're like, you out at the pub, Simon? Yes. Oh, okay, fine. What are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm having three beers in the garden. Well, who with? By myself because it's fun and it's sunny. And they're like, okay. So, you know, they sort of perceive it that way. I think there's quite a lot. I don't mind drinking alone, just having a couple of nice drinks by myself and doing that. A lot of people I sort of speak to and find out really don't like that. They're like, why do you drink alone? Because I've got nice whiskey and nice beer. It's really, really tasty. And then if I can get literally drink it and not have to talk about it, it's really, really fun, you know, because then you don't interrupt my beer with your conversation. Mm. Um, but I think I think those would be the main things as as well. Prone to a bit of exaggeration sometimes as well. I think that, you know Simon can be a bit more of a, a one-upmanship person when it comes to like stories and ideas. Um, but then I'm competitive, so that's probably where that comes from. Very self-aware. Uh, probably yes and no. Um, I've, I can I you know, I think if you want to progress, you have to be able to be sort of like self quite self-critical mm. i i think if you think that you know everything then you know all of them know obviously i can come across as a know it all then you'll never learn like half the fun of like life and what goes on is that you get to learn new things introduce it like as we said before like we were at the beginning here with all the whiskeys you know i thought i knew a bit about whiskey then after drinking like 60 70 different whiskeys over 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 sort of like 12 months now I actually know about whiskey. Mm. Now I've got a better understanding and there's so much more that I can learn. I'm nowhere near an expert, but I would like to be in the next 20 years because that's probably how long it's going to take. Mm. Mm. Growing up, who was the favourite in your family? Sister, 100%. Um, and I think this is you know something that we kind of rib our family quite a lot, uh, really, as well. Um it's always, it's quite well done for me. I've got open conversations uh, about it in my family. I was an accident. They were planning on having children, but not as early as what they were initially planning planning on doing. So I was a little bit unexpected. My sister was planned, the wanted child. Mm. And my brother was eight years later, so definitely an accident as well. And this is all absolutely fine to say because I've even got, there's a picture on social media of my brother holding a birthday card saying he was an accident. So it's absolutely fine. So it's well documented. But yeah, but whether that's true or not is actually a thing. It was just sort of like a perceived sort of like favoritism as as well. Like I was the oldest, you know. My sister was two. My sister was two years two two years younger, but but not in a bad way where it was ever detrimental. Mm. So yeah, you're probably going to ask me why, and I'm going to have to try and work out really as well. But it just was sort of like various things like when there be arguments, you know, it's that it comes about with sort of like boys and girls and how they sort of have to grow up. I grow up and what boys and girls can't do, which is very relevant in this day, day and age where, you know, boys have to be sort of like big and strong, but not too big and strong. So obviously my sister and me used to fight because, you know, kids, you know, mm. you know when you're like eight and six, 
you're going to knock shades out of mm. each other really as well because it's fun and that's what you do and you get wound up when you're in a house and you're just crawling all over it, crawling all over each other. So therefore, obviously, as the big brother was like, Simon, don't do that. And I'm like, she literally threw something at me. Mm. Like, what are, you do- what are you doing? Like, she started the fight. It's not my fault that I've got a handful of her hair in my hand now. That's irrelevant as well. So that's, I suppose, where you think about the favouritism comes from. But then... My sister lived at home for quite a few more years before she actually moved out. So she was always around there, was privy to probably a lot more information around some of my family and parents where I moved out pretty much straight away after coming back from university. I was like, yeah, no, I quite like having my own space. I need to do this again mm. as well. And I can't be as tidy as what you need me to be. And how do you feel about that now? How do you feel about her having been the favourite or still the favourite now? <laughs> doesn't really bother me being perfectly honest with you. I would say that... You know, probably after I sort of came back from university, my relationship with my parents changed a lot more. You know, the, the independence decisions that I was making, the grown-up decisions about buying houses, and like, oh, I actually got to buy my own car and do this kind mm. of kind of stuff, became a lot more adult. And I felt like I was doing probably a lot more adult things by sort of moving out, going around, changing jobs three times um, than, than than my sister. So it doesn't really make any difference really now. And it was looking back on it. That was a perceived favouritism being as well, where probably being, you know, the older brother, I should have been you know, probably a bit more of an adult, a bit more grown up in what was, what was going on, even though my sister was like, trying to wind me up. Mm. Could you isolate a driving force, a, a sort of final goal um, away from work? That's a good question. Uh, no, I've... You know, being sort of criticised, you know, that my work defines me quite a lot because that's the, the sort of singularity of the goals. But contentness is basically what I'd really like in my life, to be happy, really, as well, with what I have, what I've got, to, what I've got and what I've, what I've achieved, you know, and everything as well. I want to be able to look back in 15, 20 years and be like, I achieved that and it was mine. Or I owned that car that I always wanted to really as well because I could. I did that and that was an enjoyable thing to go and try and do. Or I travelled to that place because I had the time to go and do that Do that as well when I could do it in the way that I wanted to. And, you know, to look back and not have, you know, I don't have any regrets now, which is, you know, probably if you asked me that 10 years, I would have thought there would be, 10 years ago, I thought there'd be regrets. And now I sort of look back and they are just, you know, learning points of what it is but to look back and just be content with what I did is probably the ultimate goal really mm. rather than be like it's not like I want a house here doing this with this much land or something I don't care about those type, type of things just to be happy and look back and realise that you know you had a good life and good people in it that's the ultimate really so what would be a good death for you? <laughs> that is interesting that is something I've never thought about um Quick, <laughs> potentially would be the would be the obvious one, rather than probably some sort of long or drawn out sort of like uh, illness that sort of like goes that goes on and on. Um, yeah, a quick death, ideally, but after a full life, you know. Mm. I've always sort of said, you know, wouldn't mind. I've not even said that. You know, I've always thought that I wouldn't mind if it was like quick or you know doing something that I doing something that I enjoyed or doing something I was pushing like I was throwing myself down a mountain on a mountain bike when I'm sixty. You're probably going to kill yourself doing mm. that. So, but wouldn't do. But yeah, just quick, really, and contented. And that obviously then and then also would be the least painful to the people around you, really as well. It's an odd thought. 
what do you want to do when you retire? Uh, when I, being honest, when I retire, I'd like to stop and build my own car. That that's something I've always looked back and do. You, like the there's the kit car type of things. You know, if I could have a garage where I could just go and build my own car and then completely learn about what something you know, cars are something I really like. But I don't know how to maintain them in the ways I do. I don't know what really makes them work. So to go and build my own or something that I've looked uh, looked at for years and always really enjoyed owning and enjoyed reading about or watching racing, that would be cool, really, as well. And then to be able to do that, have something that I completely built myself, that would give me my own self fulfillment. Well, I just like, I built that all myself, and it's a completely completely like, complex piece of engineering. Mm. That would be, I think, quite, quite amusing. Is, is there any reason you haven't pursued that as a career? Time, uh, time, and it's it, the thing is for that's that's for me is a hobby, really, uh, as, as well, and that almost gives me this, you know, like we sort of talked about before, before like working on my bikes and doing that, or like cleaning my car or maintaining the car to the limited amounts that I can do it as well. Those are enjoyable hobbies for me that allow me to, you know, sort of like have a balance between work and doing those type of things. I like going on YouTube and being like, I don't know how to fix this. How can I work it out? Mm. I despise giving it to a guy to go and fix or maintain. I want to learn how to do it myself because then I feel like in the long run that I'm going to get more out of it. Mm. But, but being perfectly honest, I looked at selling cars before I went into recruitment. It just wasn't stable enough really as well. And mm. I couldn't see where it went as well. I was just like, well, you just keep selling cars, keep selling cars. Where does it go? You could hit some upper echelons, but it didn't seem something that was going to give me the enjoyment or the career path where I keep fulfilling myself all the time. How is recruitment different? How is recruitment different? There's, you've got so many different more avenues that you can go down to in what you're selling, I suppose, in terms of people and then management and then ownership of business and how that business works and what it does. And, you know, if you're going to take a company and then go and sell it, Mm. where essentially like car buying is from what I see and from what I was then researching at the time, you're always looking for the stock. You get the stock and then you go and sell it to your products and everything as well. However much money you earn, yes, you could go and have your own business and run it yourself there, but you can do that in recruitment as well. Mm. But the it's a bit too one-dimensional and if you ever got bored of doing it, for example, then what could you go and do? Mm. Whereas recruitment gives me options. I can go and sell other things or I can go and do other types of sales roles in different industries as well from the skills that I've learned away from just selling people, <laughs> essentially, uh, and the business acumen that I've got from it in terms of how you run it, what you're doing, it, what the profitability is and how you sort of structure that, hiring people, what they do, their career goals beyond just hitting sales numbers is a bit more enjoyable. And sort of lockdown aside, of the people you spend time with, uh, who brings out your best qualities? It'll be my, um, it's, at the moment from the best qualities, my girlfriend at the moment brings out good qualities, really challenges me in the way that I I think and what I do and what, you know, what I, and the conversations that I have, you know, around that and sort of give me a bit more awareness of sort of things and probably my own feelings and sort of how everything else in the the world is just by being, you know, probably a more experienced person and dealing with with people and dealing with situations as well, which Mm. has been enjoyable. And then the rest of it is my friends. So I still got the same friendship group that I went to school with. So from the age of 11, I'm still hanging out with the same six or seven people when I'm 35. And, Mm. you know, they bring out a side of me and an enjoyment and a sort of a relaxed part where just get along so well we play good ball they play the ball games that we play together and everything and just hang out and 
they're the key people I would say that are probably in my life that bring out sort of the best parts of me. Board games? Board games, yes. So we play the, it started off, must be about seven or eight years ago, that I got into a game called Settlers of Catan. Um, So then it turns out that my friend, sort of like Marcus, Liam, Paul, Mike, and Brad were playing a Game of Thrones board game. It was Mm. incredibly complex. And in uh, what these call these worker placement games of how you sort of move people around, draw various resources to create sort of like a winning mentality, whether that's gaining areas on a board. And it's sort of snowboard where, being perfectly honest with you, Marcus and Brad have had the ideas and the ownership and they have the knowledge base Mm. and everything as well. And then me and other friends just sort of turn up and enjoy them uh, as well, probably doing that a disservice. But we found it something to be a better way of just hanging out in an evening as well. It's like, well, I can go around to your house, play board games, drink nice alcohol and hang out with my mates and hear each other and still have that, rather than going to a pub and sitting around a table and you can't hear each other, probably my age showing as I got to my late 20s (laughs) and being like, I don't want to go sit in a loud bar anymore when we've got nice alcohol at home. Mm. But it's, and it's also a nice way of doing it because it can be quite challenging. These Mm. games, like, to learn them sometimes, we have to sit down and go through 40 minutes of rules, which sounds boring, but it isn't because it's, again, it's, you learn it, it's a bit of a, it's a challenge. You you're working out something new to do, and then if you're all learning at the same speed, then it's you know we're all competitive people. We want to win mm. and everything as well. So you know some people are definitely better than than than, than others, but there's nobody in it that's just awful and doesn't get it. So yeah, it's a more enjoyable way to spend time with your mates. But then it's sort of we've obviously then as you know it's probably where it comes from. We're always looking for that next challenge of like what are the most complex ones? How can we do that? And we're now playing a game sometimes when we have the time that takes a whole day to play where we'll have to sit down at 9am and play but it will be at least 10 11 hours long <laughs> amazing it's interesting the first mm. time we did it it was mentally cha- mentally challenging but then the biggest thing at the end of doing it even though i have never won this game and a few people have because it takes so long you're like well i want to try again I want to do that again I can see what I did wrong let's do it again let's play mm. again not obviously straight away but like in a month or so's time when people have got the time and the weekends to do that so it's addictive yeah it's addictive because obviously with these things when you play it you know like it's like a lot of situations when you do it and you and if you can evaluate how you went wrong or why you didn't win you're like okay well, I want to play again because now I want to change how I did it make that decision slightly better and you can tweak it and you can get better at it and everything mm. as well. But the thing is you're you know, with a number of other people that are very intelligent and they're working out just as quick, if not quicker than you normally, that you have to try and stay a step ahead of them. That's where the competitiveness comes in. So I mean, there's these board game cafes that sort of turn up. But I would say that someone like my friend Marcus and Brad probably have upwards of sort of like 50, 60 games that we can now rotate mm. and play around them that we've accumulated over the years. And then I'll get like a text on a WhatsApp being like, we've got this new game. And I'm like, this is cool. Like, I've got no idea even what it is. Let's just, let's just play it. Let's do it. <laughs> Are you at where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I perceive my life to be different. You know, at 35, I probably perceived myself to be, like when I was in my 20s, I thought I'd be married and have kids. Um, but I'm not disappointed that I don't really as well because if I was married and had kids right now I would have forced a previous relationship or something into that which clearly wasn't working uh, as well so therefore I would be unhappy (laughs) married and have kids Um, so in theory I thought you know that where I am and what I'm doing in terms of my life and sort of the relationships that I have 
probably slightly different to what I perceived, but I'm better in work than where I thought I would be really as well. So I'm ahead of the curve where I think I am there in terms of where my goals and achievements that I set out probably a few years ago are in terms of where I'm probably going to be getting to. Mm. So it's all about yeah, ups and downs really as well. So some of it's gone better, some of it hasn't, but it's all gone in a reasonably right, it's all gone in the right direction where I don't have any regrets about it. When you were a child, what did you want to do? Oh, I just wanted to be a racing car driver really as well spent half my time in go-karts as a kid really as well I didn't own my own one that was something that my, I was like I remember specifically asking me I said dad can I have a go-kart mm. he's like no it's really expensive and what are you going to do it's just going to be an endless stream of money go and play on the on the uh, on the higher carts all the time which we did and that was enjoyable really as well so I'm almost glad that that happened because otherwise it would have just taken up all of our time and bankrupted my dad probably mm. looking back at it but I just like driving fast around in circles you know, and that's the thing where obviously you're just endlessly trying to get slightly better, slightly better every lap. Can I go faster? Can I go faster? Can I go a tenth faster here? Or can I do an overtake here? And that's just enjoyable. But yeah, I would love to have been a racing car driver, but you know, it's in the same way that some children want to be astronauts. It's not really always going to happen for everybody. Going faster and faster, just like you say, you are constantly pushing yourself at work. Yeah, it's just... I. A lot of those, as you can see, a lot of the things that I enjoy are the things that are, are moving forward or doing this or hitting that next stage or just getting slightly better. It's enjoyable to try and improve all the time mm. uh, as well. So, yeah, it's always it's hard to sort of put and you want to be you want to be improving and moving forwards. So, and that's the thing where driving around in circles, driving around in circles, trying to be quicker quicker than someone else. Mm. Yeah, it's again that competitiveness. To what end? I'm usually an accident <laughs> as well. If we're going to do it on the on the on the karting side, but some the thing is, is that I suppose in terms of me, so I suppose pushing myself and trying to get better and better. You know, as long as I feel like I'm moving 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 forwards or moving moving upwards, it'll always be good. There'll be times that obviously it will stag, stagnate or do that, and I'll have to find something else or I find a new challenge to go to go and do that or grow myself in a different way whether that's going to be qualifications or different things in in the future but um i'm not only worried about it in you know i don't tend to sort of sit at home and go like, oh, what am i going to do in 10 years hmm. doesn't really bother me <laughs> too much i'm kind of excited and interested to see sort of like where i end up hmm. well hopefully contentment yes well, that'd be the that'd be the ideology wouldn't it so but I think as long as I just keep it, you know, keep sort of achieving and the right things sort of keep happen, keep happening, then I'll be content really as well. Because then, if I hit those achievements or you know have the things that I want to go and do and be able to support any hobbies that I go and do as well, then that's going to be really good fun. Mm. You have a dog licking your hand. I do. Then. Yes, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Jobson, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really fantastic to have you. Really appreciate. It. Thank you so much. Amazing. If you enjoyed this exploration into Simon's unlived life, make sure to give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel for a new episode every Wednesday. Did you gain something from this episode? Let me know in the comments section. I hope you enjoyed watching. Mm -hmm.